as we enter into our time of worship, I'm actually going to read our scripture passage for today. From Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. We've got some things to talk about this morning. All right. Hey, good morning, new community. I'm going to invite you to. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to invite you to come on in, grab a seat. Um, before we actually jump into the text this morning, uh, if you have been watching the news, you know that uh, there is uh, significant conflict, violence happening in the Middle East, and uh, we just wanted to take a moment and just uh, kind of in our own selves say a prayer for peace. In the Middle East right now, uh, there are no easy answers. We're not going to get into uh, <clears throat> that kind of stuff other than let us just pray right now for peace. Let us stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, as we try to navigate uh, how to be in this moment and for the loss of life, uh, the disruption, the conflict. Uh, let's just take a moment here and uh, be kind of in silence with our own thoughts and prayers. Lord, we pray, we pray for peace, not even uh, really sure what else to pray in this moment, other than we trust that you are God, uh, we trust that you have the ability to intervene in miraculous ways, and we call upon you. Lord, be here in this place this morning as we open your scripture. We pray, Spirit, that you would illuminate to us your message. You, we pray that you uh, would convict us, you would encourage us, you would challenge us, you would move us as we study in community. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, folks. We're uh, glad that you are here. Uh, we read our passage earlier. Uh, Jerusha read the passage out to us. And uh, I think we have a very exciting morning ahead of us. So I hope that you are with me on that. Uh, but we're going to start this way. I'm going to put the passage. Actually, I'm not going to. Russ is going to put the passage back up there. And uh, I'm not going to read it again. I'm going to give you a moment to read through these four verses. And I want you to ask this question. How do these verses make you feel? What bubbles up inside when you read these words? And why do you think you have that response? I'm just going to give you uh, 30, 30 seconds or so to, to kind of think about that. So I know these verses, and really... I think if we're honest here, especially the first six words can evoke a variety of, motion, of emotions. And so this morning we're going to talk about these three verses and, and really 
honestly, we're going to talk primarily about the first verse, verse 18. And the irony is not lost on me that I, a white, middle-aged, cisgendered, middle-class male, perhaps the type of person that has wrongly benefited from passages like this one, teach on this section this morning. So as a caveat or as kind of an overarching statement, I just want to say that I, our entire staff, approach sections of Scripture like this with great humility, with sensitivity to the realities of these passages and how they've been interpreted throughout the history of our faith. Because I think we can all agree that this passage, along with the connected sections, primarily in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, but also 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter, have been used and wielded to advance patriarchal ideals and subjugate women and children to male dominance and authority. And if that has been your lived church experience, I am deeply apologetic. Because any time scripture is used to denigrate another human being or advance an agenda other than God's agenda, it should deeply sadden us all. So, what do we do with a passage like this, right? That's the question. What do we do with a passage like this? Should we just skip it out of frustration? Can we pretend that it doesn't exist? Do we throw it away as no longer important? And I don't think any of those options work, especially if we claim to be a people of the Scripture. And so we must do our best and do the hard work of biblical interpretation, and we have to wrestle with the text. And in order to do so, this morning, I'm going to provide just a few tools. This is not an exhaustive list of biblical interpretation. These are just a few tools that I think can be helpful, especially when we're considering a conclusion to these four verses. So here is the first tool, context matters. Context matters. So any student of the Bible needs to remember that these words were written to a specific person or community in a specific time and place, often addressing a very specific issue. So that old adage that the Bible says it and I follow it, I think is a pretty narrow and frankly untenable position to hold when you're trying to approach the Holy Scriptures, right? It's important when you read a passage like this to ask, first and foremost, what was happening for Paul to write about the family in this way? What was happening for Paul to write about the family in this way? So let me give you just a bit of context about what was happening. In the first century, women were barely second-class citizens, and children were not cherished in the ways that we have come to cherish children. In fact, both were seen more as property than they were as human beings. Both in the Jewish and pagan patriarchal society, women had very little, if any, rights whatsoever. And a woman's existence was really only justified in her ability to provide children. In this time, in that first century, it was widely accepted for men to be abusive and polygamous. 
while women were held to complete devotion, servitude, and chastity to her husband. Societally, men had all the power, they had all the control, and women were seen and treated as an inferior gender. It was even worse for children. Under the Roman Patria, uh, Patria Potestas Law, children were subject to the complete dominion of their parents, specifically the father. The law allowed fathers to do anything they liked, including forced labor, selling them into slavery, and even extended the right to condemn a child to death if the father desired. So this world was shaped in many ways by this specific understanding of positions and roles of each of these family members. Ancient philosophers of the time speak of the home as a microcosm reflecting the perfect structure of a society as modeled by the pagan gods. This forms a set of accepted household codes, they're called, and the culture is built on the foundation that a man's unparalleled authority over his household was critical to the success of all society. So this is the world that Paul is writing into. And it's important to remember two things in this. First, this is the only way that the apostles knew. It's the only way they knew, right? As Sharon Dowd observes, the apostles advocated this system not because God had revealed it as the divine will for the Christian home, but because it was the only stable and respectable system anyone knew about. It was the best the culture had to offer. So to look back in the context requires some extension of understanding to those in that time. You can only ever really operate within the bounds of your own time and place. Now this doesn't absolve individuals from wrongdoing, but it does allow us further insight as to the why. Why might Paul be writing to the family in this way? And this means, as we interpret, that we always have to take into consideration how our scientific, societal, cultural advances can and should affect our reading, right? Now, the second thing to remember is that Paul is a missionary. That's who he was. His aim is always to make Christ known and disciple followers to grow in their faith. And in this instance, he is writing to guide and instruct this young and burgeoning church to become a witness to Christ within the confines of the dominant culture around. Craig Keener writes this, as many scholars have pointed out, members of the Roman elite suspected Christianity, like several other non-Roman religions, of subverting Roman family values. By upholding what was honorable in Roman values, the Christian could try to protect themselves from undue persecution and from misunderstandings of the gospel. And so maybe in this moment, in these few verses, Paul is doing some significant work to blend what was the current culture with this radical message of Christ. He is urging the church to live out a new gospel reality within the framework that they have been given so as not to completely delegitimize the entire Christian movement. Leslie Newbigin says, the New Testament assumes a missionary situation 
in which the church is a small evangelizing movement in a pagan society. Much of Paul's letters, including the household codes, are about how the new Christians were to live beside their pagan neighbors without doing damage to the fledgling Christian movement. And so it's with this contextual understanding that we can begin to see that there is maybe more going on in these verses than just the words that were written on the page. Here's your second tool. I believe you have to read all of Scripture with a redemptive trajectory in mind. This idea has been spoken about a number of times, and in fact, we'll come back to it next week as we continue on in our study of Colossians. But it's critical, uh, it's critical interpretive tool to see how scriptures are progressively moving us towards redemption and the, fullness, uh, the fullest expression of the kingdom ethic in the now. It's critical to see how the scriptures are progressively moving us toward redemption and the fullest expression of the kingdom ethic in the now. While these four verses sound antiquated to us as we look back towards them, they were actually revolutionary in what was being communicated in the moment. The reality that wives were even acknowledged and involved in the movement of submission was a radical step in the direction of equality. And additionally, if you look at the corresponding verse in Ephesians 5.21, prior to Paul's instruction for wives to submit to their husbands, his general instruction for the entirety of the community is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Paul is doing here is not only leveling the playing field, but showing that in Christ there is a new reality for humanity. A reality that turns upside down all of our preconceived ideas about power and position. Rachel Held Evans says this, but with Christ, hierarchical relationships are exposed for the sham that they are. As the last are made first, the first are made last, the poor are blessed, the meek inherit the earth, and the God of the universe takes the form of a slave. You see, in Christ, we no longer operate under the ideas of superior versus inferior, for the same and equal call of submission is placed on us all. Paul is instructing the entire community about mutual and reciprocal collaboration, humility, and the consideration of others before yourself. This is what it means to be a people of mutual submission. You actively decenter yourself and filter your decisions through what is good for the whole rather than just what's good for you. To direct the entire community in this way, then intentionally acknowledging that the wife had an important role and position, one that could be voluntarily assumed as a significant movement along this redemptive trajectory that will someday be fully realized in the kingdom. It gave wives autonomy and a voice in a culture that had worked to silence women. And interestingly, Paul doesn't stop there. He turns his attention to the husband, specifically calling him to love. This too would have been a radical call. 
Love is largely absent in both Hellenistic and first century Jewish discussions on marital relationships. It was not a part of this idea of marriage. You see, marriage in the first century was built around, or was not built around the idea of finding your soulmate as it is in our culture. People were not partnering due to undeniable chemistry and romance. Their relationships were not seen as a beautiful journey of joy and pain endured together through hard work and commitment. Marriage was utilitarian. It was out of necessity, a way to consolidate power between families. Marriages were far more about the relational contract aspect of it than it was anything else. And so the fact that husbands are called to love, to cultivate an emotion and an action of self-sacrifice and care toward their wife, again, moves us along this redemptive trajectory where love, as modeled by Christ, becomes the building block of all relationships. Both of these actions, submitting and loving in a self-sacrificing manner, are modeled after the life and the earthly mission of Jesus. It helps us to see that these two functions are of equal value and of equal importance. And in this way, Paul is elevating the women that he is writing to, to the status of equal, just like God's original intention. Additionally, this sets the course for how these new Christian-centered household codes are advancing the relational culture to be closer to God's ultimate redemptive reality for humanity. Paul is not only calling the church to a new way of being, but laying the groundwork for the redemption of all things that was and is to come. And the final set of tools that I want to offer, I think is the one that maybe takes the most earnest awareness, the most earnest reflection on our part. Because it can only really be done after you do the work of understanding some of the context, and it can only really be done after you read through the lens of Christ's redemptive trajectory and the promised renewal of all things. And it's when you read in a way that allows the spirit to illuminate the heart behind the message. You read in a way that allows the spirit to illuminate the heart behind the message. When I give myself to that, when I try to read in a way where I allow spirit to speak to me, here is what I gather. Everyone in a family is important and has a role to play. Husbands and wives need to prioritize mutual submission, commitment, and love for each other. Parents and children need to trust one another, building a framework of honesty, respect, and care. When you read it this way, it's clear that Paul is laying out a new vision for families, a new way of being and operating. The heart behind the instruction is to break free from the destructive and harmful familial patterns of the surrounding culture and live into the redemptive way of Jesus Christ. And that is the same call placed on us, the same call given to us and our families. If you read this passage in Colossians this way, if you avail yourself to studying in community what the Spirit might be saying, 
if you put yourself in a place to ask these types of transformative questions, maybe this scripture comes alive in a new way. I mean, imagine if Paul was writing into our context a letter of instruction to the faithful followers at New Community, living in and among a largely post-Christian, even pagan society, desiring to live out the commands of Jesus, what would Paul write into our world? Now, I'm not sure it would be about matters of submission or love or embittering our children. Maybe it would, but maybe it wouldn't. I'm not convinced those are necessarily the greatest things plaguing the health of our families. So I gave myself to kind of think about that this week. What would maybe Paul write into our world? I asked the Spirit to illuminate a few things, and here is what was impressed on me. Within a culture that thrives on distraction, and consumption. I think maybe Paul would write about the harmful patterns of our inability to be present with one another. And how maybe how difficult it is for us to be contented with our lives as they currently are. Within our culture that pushes towards busyness and materialism, I think the harmful pattern might be overextended parents and anxiety-ridden children that have lost the art of Sabbath, rest, and simplicity. And within a culture that values independence and mobility, I think our relational destruction, especially seen in our families, is connected to our own self-absorption and our broken understanding of commitment. So here is my question to you. What do you think Paul would address in your family relationships? What might he write into your context? How might he call you to a different way of being, to a different witness to the culture around? Paul's instruction to the Colossians was a new model a model based after Christ, what might that new way look like for you? Three quick, easy tools. Again, not an exhaustive list, but three things that have helped me as I wrestle with passages like this. This will continue on into next week as Russ discusses the remainder of chapter 3, but I wanted to start, or I wanted to uh, just end here saying this. We started this morning discussing why some folks here in this place have a significant emotional response to the passage from this morning. When you do the interpretive work, when you implement tools like this, I think it's important to remember that it's probably not the passage itself that creates that response but the way that it's been abused in the past. Stackhouse says this, when society was patriarchal, as it was in the New Testament context, 
and as it has been everywhere in the world except in modern society in our day, the church avoided scandal by going along with it, fundamentally evil as patriarchy was and is. Now, however, that modern society is at least officially egalitarian, the scandal is that the church is not going along with society, not rejoicing in the unprecedented freedom to let women and men serve according to gift and call without arbitrary gender line. This scandal impedes both the evangelism of others and the edification, the retention and development of faith of those already converted. We as the church, we as a community of Christ followers, need to hold tightly to the scripture but continue to be willing to call out its misuse in our church history. And we do this in humility and also with an understanding that the holy scriptures do allow for some difference in how they are lived out. Now, you'll notice this morning I was intentional not to give any answers, right? There's no specific answers about what to do with this passage, just some interpretive tools of how you might understand it. You can't find in this message a statement about exactly how the family should operate, and this is because the beauty of Scripture and the expansiveness of our Lord allow for differences in how one applies the instruction in these four verses. There are people that will interpret with a more traditional understanding and therefore structure their family accordingly. And there are others that lean towards a more progressive reading and their family structure will unfold as such. What is critical between those two things is that we do not lift these four verses out of the broader biblical conversation in which they are contained. So I'm going to end by reading a condensed version of everything that precedes these verses in Colossians. Everything that precedes these verses specifically about how families should act because I think they lead us to a deeper understanding of what Paul is getting at. And I'm going to invite you to just close your eyes. Listen to these words. They're not even going to be up on the screen. Just listen to these, ver these words here. You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. You have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self. Bear with each other and forgive one another. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If each of us was to live into that instruction, grab onto those things, put on those types of clothes, then I'm convinced the redemptive reality of the kingdom would be present in all of our churches and families. Colossians reminds us that whether we are a wife or a husband or a child, we are called to focus our entire lives on Christ, doing whatever we do in the name of the Lord. And if spouses and parents and children can live into this call, can posture themselves in this way, then our family relationships will be honoring to one another and honoring to the Lord. Amen.